What an interesting week this has been. Uh, following months of hyperbolic, exaggerated, breathless claims about waves of voter rebellion and electoral upheaval, and how this may well be the end of democracy as we know it, we woke up Wednesday morning to find that nothing had really changed. And our country is still pretty evenly divided on a whole range of issues. And we are right to be concerned and engaged in our political fortunes. We are living on this planet, after all. We are citizens of this country. And administrations and policies have a very real impact on our lives and livelihoods. But our frustrations with our political processes and our occasional joy, even, in the political processes should rightfully be constrained when viewed in light of the eternal administration that is to come at least from a believer's perspective. We pay attention to what's happening here, but we're looking forward to what's there. Uh, and, you know, in short, it, it occurred to me, even the best men or the best women, if the best were to ever somehow get elected, I'm not sure what that would look like, but even if the best people got elected, while they can take steps to make our lives somewhat better, they can't solve the problems of the heart. They can't provide the antidote for evil they can't force or enforce righteousness. So we live as good citizens here with the system that we've got, and we keep our eyes fixed there with a living hope of what is to come. And that's one of, if not the big idea in First Peter. We are called to live lives of meaning and purpose to prepare us for the life to come. Last week, Randy gave us the 411, you know, all the info we need to prepare us for a look at First Peter. And so we now know that Peter actually wrote First Peter. I mean, it says it, but people have questioned it over the years. Um, but we know that Peter wrote it, and he wrote this letter to the elect, to the believers, to the, the first century Christ followers, to those God has chosen. And then he, he referred to those elect as exiles, exiles of the dispersion. And he pointed out that these exiled folks um, it would have included believers who had willingly relocated, people who had moved to various places, but it also included believers who had been forcibly relocated into strange cultures and strange places. So, so Peter's letter really applies to all believers in all locations, living in a variety of circumstances, under a variety of governments and magistrates and local laws and cultures, and regardless of their setting, they have something in common. And Peter kind of makes this, this veiled illusion, which we'll spend more time spelling out later, that these exiled believers likely find themselves living in a battle of cultures. And he makes this fairly clear when he says, to you chosen believers who are exiled according to God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. I mean, the, the implication here, in, in essence, what he's saying is your commitment to Father, Spirit, and Son will cause you to stand out a bit from the culture you're living in. If you identify with Father, Spirit, and Son, you're going you're gonna to look a little different. And whatever culture you find yourself in, whether it's Pontus or, or Galatian or Galatia or Asia or Prosser, whatever the culture, living as a Christian will mark you as different, or at least it ought to. So the greeting he gives to these exiles, living and struggling amidst their various cultural circumstances, Peter says, "My grace and may grace and peace be multiplied to you. 
Now, grace is sometimes translated as favor, as in receiving the Lord's favor. And the word for peace, Randy pointed out, this is the New Testament version of the Old Testament word shalom, which is peace, but it's, it's grander in scale. It's a general well-being. It's not just, may you have a sense of calm in this moment. Peter's writing with this bigger sense of, of peace. So his greeting to these exiled uh, believers or is, is a request or a prayer even for the exiles to know the Lord's favor and to have a general sense of spiritual well-being wherever they find themselves. It's almost as though Peter knew that in order for us, the elect exiles, to live reasonably happy, well-adjusted, Christ-following lives, swimming against the current of our local culture, we're going to need a healthy dose of the Lord's grace and peace. And then may it continue to be multiplied to us. That's how he opens the letter. And then he begins to build his argument for exactly how exiles are called to live in these various cultures. What makes us different? And so he gets to the, from this greeting, he gets to the body of the letter, starts getting into the main point. So let's pick it up in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. These couple of verses are loaded with stuff. So we're going to break it down just a little bit. Peter gets into the letter proper here. We're past the greeting. Now he's into the letter with this really was, was kind of a, a stirring declarative statement. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ! Exclamation point. We would probably, because, you know, we're lazy that way, we'd boil it down even more and say, praise God! It's almost like this is a, kind of a, an ecstatic utterance to open the letter. He seems pretty excited. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ! Exclamation point. And then he tells us why he's so excited. Why we should be excited. Peter lists a number of reasons for us to bless our God and Father. We should praise God because, well, he causes us to be born again. He's given us a living hope. He's provided for us an inheritance that will not perish or fade. And he's guarding this inheritance for us. He's keeping it safe for us. It'll be ready when we are. Yeah, those colors are dark too, aren't they? And then he points those things out, and then he wraps it all up for us. He kind of puts a, puts a bow on the point. The reason we should praise God and bless him is salvation. Really, all those other reasons, the born again, the living hope, those ideas are all really connected to, or, or different ways even, of saying salvation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because he has offered us salvation. That's a pretty good reason for us to be excited. And somewhere in the middle there, Peter points out that these blessings from God the Father are dependent on, they're based on even, they're provided through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's kind of the central idea in this passage of text here. We are born again, we have a living hope, we have an inheritance that's being safeguarded for us, and it's all because Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, it's interesting, I think, anyway, it's interesting to note that Peter doesn't say, 
we have all of these blessings because Jesus died on a cross. Which, of course, happened. In fact, it was a necessary precursor to resurrection. But Peter says we have these blessings. We have the gift of salvation because of or through the resurrection of Christ. Now, Peter's not discounting the cross. He's not a cross denier. I mean, Peter had pretty good first-hand evidence that it really happened. And Peter will go on in later chapters to talk about the, the benefits and blessings associated with the cross. But here, it's almost like he's making this kind of apologetic kind of argument. He goes on to tell us how we are to live as elect exiles. Uh, he briefly, in, in very few words, tells us why we ought to live as Christ followers. It's because of the resurrection of Jesus. And then Peter kind of ends that argumentation right there. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's his reason for why we should live as we're called to live. It's because Jesus came back from the dead. Mic drop. And that really kind of struck me. So as I was thinking through this, I'm going to tease this out just a little bit more, but Jesus, when he was alive, could have made any number of promises. He could have made any number of promises to any number of people prior to his death. And we just came through an election cycle, so we have some idea of what that might look like. Right? He could have promised all this stuff. He could have been the greatest teacher ever, incorporating all kinds of parables and analogies and interesting stories and folksy tales designed to tickle the ears of his constituents. He could have made outlandish claims, things like, I'll rebuild this temple in three days. He could have said all of that stuff and done all of those things and caused really a, a cultural stir and then died on a cross never to be heard from again. In fact, when Jesus was alive, before he began his ministry period, after he started, there were any number of competing messiahs. There have always been people claiming to have some measure of divinity. And they've said lots of stuff, and they've made a lot of promises. They've told a lot of stories, and we can't name one of them today. Well, maybe some, you know, nerdy history guy could, but the rest of us, we can't name one of those other pseudo-messiahs. Why? Because they didn't come back from the dead. We don't know them. We don't follow them. Because when they died, with all their promises and all their wise sayings, they stayed dead. Jesus, on the other hand, he said and did all of those things I mentioned, and, and many, many more. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He said, come unto me, all that labor and thirst. I'll give you rest. He said, I'll go and prepare a place for you, and I'll keep it safe. I'll have it ready for you when it's time. And then he died, and then he was resurrected. So the resurrection proves Jesus' identity. It proves his power and his message. It proved Jesus was the Messiah, the Messiah. He was the chosen one. Now the cross was the vehicle to and for our salvation. It provided the necessary substitutionary atonement. Jesus died in our place for our sins. It had to happen that way to satisfy God's justice. But the resurrection was proof that Jesus could and do 
all of the other things that he said. And after his death, because of the resurrection, he became our living hope. He was seen alive by many after he died. And consequently, as followers of Christ, he gave us a reason to live with hope. He gave us certain expectation of what's to come for us. Because we too, likely, will die a physical death. But the salvation of our souls has been secured. Our resurrection from spiritual death has been guaranteed. So Peter starts this letter with this urgent, excited reminder. It's almost like he's going to say, before I say anything else, and I've got stuff to say to you people, but before I say anything else, remember the gift that you've been given. Remember the living hope that you possess. Remember the inheritance that is yours. It's being kept safe. Free from rust and entropy and inflation and recession. Remember your faith in Christ who made all of this possible and praise God. Bless God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This section may be even more loaded with stuff than the last section. So this rejoicing or praising continues. At least it ought to continue. This might best be understood as, in this, you continue to rejoice. It suggests an ongoing activity. And the word translated rejoice often signifies a deep spiritual joy. It's not just that fake smile that Christians can put on sometimes. Not, you know, you people. But it's, it's a deep spiritual joy. In fact, it's the same word that's used in the Magnificat. When Mary sings, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices rejoices in God my Savior. So Mary was overjoyed at the prospect of the arrival of the Christ child. We should be in a state of continual rejoicing that Jesus would die and be resurrected on our behalf. It's a deep spiritual joy that we should feel on an ongoing basis. So, for all these things Peter just said, in this, in these things you rejoice, you've been born again, you have this inheritance, you have salvation, we ought to be rejoicing, continually rejoicing, with a deep spiritual joy, even though, and here's where it gets a little tough, even though you have been grieved by various trials. And then Peter adds, he kind of throws in, if necessary. But I think that's just kind of the soften the blow for us, because it's, it turns out it's necessary. We're all going to suffer some. We've all been grieved in some form or fashion at one time or another. And so what just happens here, as Randy mentioned last week, that Peter connects our deep spiritual joy to our suffering and grief. There's a linkage here. They are not, as we like to believe, mutually exclusive. 
Even though for now you may be grieved by various trials, continue to rejoice. Now, grieved can also be translated as sorrowful. It's the idea of a really a soulful heaviness. So the reference to grief here is not just, you know, a slight annoyance with the rigors of life. It's not an inconvenience or, or a pet peeve. Peter's referring to something that causes deep sorrow, the life-can-be-hard kind of stuff. But he's already given us the antidote. The counter to deep sorrow is deep joy. Rejoicing in the God who is merciful towards us and causes us to be born again. Real joy, Peter's saying, real joy has the ability to mitigate deep sorrow. Not erase it. Make it manageable. Make it tolerable. It gives us something to look forward to. The the word trial can also be translated as temptation. So if you think about it in terms of temptation and not just trial, this opens up a whole big range of possibilities of things that annoy us or cause us grief. Living as an exiled Christian in an alien or foreign culture may not result in physical persecution, but it can cause serious issues which cause us to suffer, which cause us to feel grief. And Peter's connection between joy and suffering wasn't, to our great misfortune, accidental because he does it again. He adds, these grief-inducing trials are actually, are actually test- testing you. They're, they're, they're growing, they're purifying your faith. The suffering, the, the, the grief that may well be for our own good, that's another strong connection between joy and suffering. We do not care for this. Now, just on a, on, a, on a number basis in this letter, I found this kind of interesting. Peter uses some form of the word joy, rejoices, something along those lines, five times. He uses hope four times. He uses some form of the word suffer 13 times. He's telling us that living the life of an elect exile is not going to be easy. But it will be manageable, enjoyable, at times, and can always be joyful on a deep soul level. Now, this seems to me, just these few verses right here, this should be another bullet into what should be the corpse of the prosperity gospel. Right? This is kind of the anti-prosperity gospel. We cannot speak our perfect health into existence. Anybody tried that? We cannot name and claim our million-dollar Inheritance because we think we got, you know, three crosses on the heavenly slot machine. We should not expect a stress-free and problem-free existence because Jesus loves us and wants us to be happy. He does love us. He does want us to be happy. He just told us we ought to be constantly rejoicing, but with an emphasis on the hope that we possess now, our salvation and the greater hope that is to come for eternity. In fact, he said, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And then he left and went to prepare a place for us. We've got something to look forward to. Down here, in this fallen, sinful, foreign culture, we got issues. We have trials. We're still dealing with the, the effect of sin and the influence of the devil, but we can overcome it. 
Peter doesn't say that trials may be a consequence of our faith, so we might want to consider being prepared. What he seems to be saying is, we will face trials, so we better be prepared. And not only that, but the trials that we're going to face are actually a test of our faith. They're God-ordained for a purpose. They're purifying us. They're sanctifying us. They're making us ready to inhabit our new eternal home that Jesus has prepared already for us. It's not an easy thing for us to process. I mean, most of us at some time or other have probably thought as, as Christians... Lord, build my faith. But can we do it like in a classroom versus a laboratory kind of setting? Something I can study up on, read about, not have to live. We'd like to skip the fire part, if at all possible. Now remember, Paul's writing here to, to the dispersion, to the elect exiles, the, the scattered church, many of whom have been forcibly relocated, They've been immersed into foreign languages and foreign customs. I mean, that was a trial in and of itself. Being kicked out of their home was bad enough. And now they're, they're in the middle of this pagan culture. We also, we have to admit, live in a pagan culture. And we're going to face trials and temptations just for being in this culture. And we're going to deal with grief and testing as a result. And the challenge Peter lays out here is that we understand that life is going to consist of a series of trials that will test our faith. And he says, he tells us, it's to test the genuineness of your faith. Ooh. The purpose of testing is to find out if your faith is genuine. You probably know, like I do, I know a lot of people that claim to have faith, or a faith even in, even. But when the heat gets turned up, when the trials come out to play, when the pressure mounts, then we find out, is their faith genuine? Is our faith genuine? In whom or what do we trust? Again, I, I can think of a lot of people who claim to have faith, but they can't really express what their faith is in. You know, the, the, the ubiquitous higher power, perhaps? I have faith in a higher power. They might even say God, but when difficulty arises... It seems what they have faith in is the idea of faith. They'd like to have some kind of faith. They just don't know what that is. And so adversity comes, and there's no anchor, there's no rock, there's nothing for them to cling to, and they're wiped out. And we find out that true faith, biblical faith, saving faith is not a result of our own personal achievement or how much we might want to have faith. But real faith is trusting completely in God's achievement. And what is God's achievement? What makes him trustworthy? Well, raising Jesus from the dead, for starters. I mean, that's one of the pillars of our faith. When the chips are down, when life is hard, in whom do we trust? And Peter's talking about a, a legitimate test of our faith through grief-inducing trials. Not just, you know, my account got hacked or I'm having car problems. Not the annoyance of life kind of stuff, but Peter uses the analogy of gold being refined by fire. This is under pressure. Our faith in the Lord, our faith in his provision, 
our faith in his desire to do what is best for us, whether we see it or not, will be tested by circumstances that feel a lot like fire. And when the extreme heat is applied, the genuineness, the focus of our faith, the very basis of our faith is going to be revealed. And Peter hopes and he prays and he encourages the church scattered that when we are severely tested, may we be found praising and glorifying and honoring the revelation of Jesus Christ. In fact, this is kind of interesting here. He actually uses the phrase, result in. He prays that our testing by fire will result in praising and glorifying and rejoicing. As though the right approach or, or the proper understanding, the proper acceptance of our trials, when we view them as tests of faith and we pass the test, it will cause us then to praise and glorify and honor Jesus even more. And when he's blessed, then we will be blessed for our faithfulness. So a true and genuine faith will pass the test of trial and temptations. Now, here's what you want to hear. That won't happen 100% of the time. You're not going to pass all your tests. But to be sure, we should be passing them more often than not. And as we go older, grow older through the faith as we move closer towards holiness more often than not we pass more and more of them and we, we make that transition somewhere between blaming God for the trials to praising him for helping us grow rather than questioning his plan for us we accept his wisdom and we try to learn from it rather than reject Jesus for our hardships we glorify him for trying to make us more like him. And rather than turn away from him in anger, we honor Jesus as Lord. He is the author and finisher and tester of our faith. Jesus suffered for us. He calls us to be like him, so we should expect that we might be called to suffer for him as well. And Peter rightly connects suffering and joy. And the reward, the, the result of this obedience, or at least part of the result for this, is, is praise, glory, and honor. That will be revealed when Jesus is ultimately revealed to us again when he returns. But for now, Peter says, for now we just kind of console ourselves. We, we find hope in the death and resurrection of Christ. We know he's gone ahead to prepare a place for us. And he tells us, so though we, do, though we have not seen Jesus, we still love him. Though you do not now see Jesus, you still believe in him. We put our faith in him. We know he's working all things for our good. And unfortunately, that all things includes trials and temptations and some grief. But it's all designed for our good. And that, that knowledge that, that God's working all things for the good of those who love him, whether it seems like it or feels like it or whether we even understand it, it causes us to rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with joy. Now, I'd be willing to wager that not one of us has done that 100% of the time throughout the course of our Christian life. Our automatic reaction in times of hard grief and stress is not, well, praise the Lord, one more test. 
but we begin to realize that those tests and trials should cause us to rejoice with joy that, that is inexpressible and filled with joy. And the outcome of our tested faith, when we pass the tests and trials, the outcome is the salvation of our souls. We should not miss this connection. Our ability to endure trials, our ability to persevere, the testing of our faith, even though it causes deep sorrow and grief at times, our ability and our willingness to hang on to the hope of the resurrection of Christ, that helps secure the salvation of our souls. I mean, this ought to sound familiar. We just spent a fair amount of time going through Revelation where we talked a lot about perseverance and endurance and overcoming, right? This is the same idea here. It turns out those things actually play a significant role in our salvation why it's found in so many passages, described in so many different ways. I think one of the great missteps, one of the great mistakes of modern Christianity is the adoption or the teaching of an easy believism. We've all heard it said that to be a Christian, you just have to ask Jesus into your heart. You just have to pray the sinner's prayer, as though there's just one sinner's prayer, I guess, but just pray this prayer and you'll be saved. And that is mostly true what is more true is that asking for forgiveness and proclaiming faith in Jesus starts a process it's kind of like a high school athlete signing a letter of intent you know he can sign the letter but he still has to go to campus and he still has to play the sport he has to follow through on what he said he would do So we, we hope and we pray that people will, pro will, will proclaim their intent to follow Jesus, even if it starts with a simple sinner's prayer. But what we have often failed to teach is that this is just the first step. Being a Christ follower is a lifelong commitment, not a one-time prayer. It is an active, ongoing commitment, and it's demonstrated and proved throughout our lifetime. And our thoughts, our words, our deeds consistency and perseverance and endurance is a requirement we have to run the race to get the prize we don't get the prize for just signing up for the race we have to run it you know coming up on a couple weeks it'll be 33 years ago I stood up in front of a group of people and made a commitment to love honor and cherish my wife or words to that effect who remembers what was said but that was the start of a lifelong vow to Lene I mean I think our faces describe the full intent of our heart <laughs> and still true to this day <laughs> now that was on a Saturday as I recall but let's say that we, we, we go through the process and we say the words and within a week or a month or five years, I don't know, something. My behavior towards her began to suggest that rather than loving her, I really kind of loathed her. And rather than finding ways to honor her, I really went out of my way to dishonor her. Maybe even I began to, you know, psychologically abuse my wife. How long would it take her to figure out that perhaps I did not mean the words that I said when I made the commitment for a lifetime. 
My vow is a vow for now, not a vow for life. And she would have been right to think I lied, to think I didn't really mean it. Because the proof, as they say, is in the pudding. Isn't that a dumb expression? <laughs> okay, I'm just going to share this. I, that thought came to my mind, and I thought, what a dumb expression. So I looked it up. It turns out that proof is in the pudding actually started off as the proof of the pudding is in the taste, which makes sense, right? But over time, over usage, it got shortened to the proof is in the pudding, and yet it retains basically the same meaning. So if you want to try a new pudding recipe, the only real metric to consider is how it tastes. Did it turn out properly? Does it look and taste like a pudding should? Does my behavior towards Lene confirm or deny the commitment I made to her? That's the proof. It's the pattern of behavior that follows, not the words that were said. And oddly enough, proof is in the pudding, I think, is the point that Peter's making here. Are you living as a follower of Christ would be expected to live? If you tell people that you're a Christian, where they go, really? <laughs> Tell me about that. <laughs> or where they say, yeah, figured. You have that scowl. You know. Are you living as a follower of Christ? We'd be expected to live. And he's writing to the exiles, right? The believers. Peter knows they're going to continue to face persecution. They're going to continue to struggle and suffer to some degree. And he's telling them, you will be grieved and tested for your faith, but it's only for a while. You have a hope that lives in you, secured by the resurrection of Jesus, that this pain and suffering is temporary, and it's actually serving a purpose to build your faith. If you persevere and endure. Your perseverance will result in the salvation of your souls. Your perseverance through good times and bad is proof of your faith in a sovereign God and a resurrected Messiah. Now, I'd like to think that 33 years is pretty decent proof that Lene and I were genuine in our vow sharing, just as resurrection was proof that Jesus was divinity. He was holy. Our perseverance and our faithfulness is proof of our faith in Jesus and our increasing holiness. But it's persistent. And with that understanding, coupled with the knowledge of what lies ahead, our, our eternity laid out for us, w that will allow us to rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. Even in bad stuff. Our long obedience in the same direction will obtain for us or result in the salvation of our souls. Now our salvation is based on grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But it is proven. It is acknowledged. We signify our acceptance and dependence on it by living a life of obedience. Even when things get tough, when things get hard. Last couple of verses. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that now have been announced to you through those who 
preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Kind of an interesting turn here Peter makes. Uh, he's just made this wonderfully compact but theologically dense argument on how, as followers of Christ, we've been born again. We've been given a living hope. We have this inheritance that's eternal. And it's all based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we are called to live accordingly. And then Peter takes time, and this is a relatively short letter. It's only five chapters in this letter as we break it down. But he spends a few minutes here, it's like, like a paragraph, kind of providing a little commentary for us on the idea of, of salvation itself. He says, concerning this salvation, what we've just been talking about, and he gives us kind of a historical perspective on salvation. And he goes back to the Old Testament, to the Old Testament prophets specifically. And, and remember at the time Peter's writing, there was no New Testament, so all they had was Old Testament. This was scripture to them. He refers back to scripture. So it wasn't just a history lesson. This was biblical. So Peter's intent here, I think, is to show these first century Christians and all who read thereafter to remind them that their spiritual blessings far outweigh their momentary suffering. And this has been the plan for a long time. More than that, I, he, he's showing them that their salvation-based blessings far outweigh anything the Old Testament prophets could have even begun to understand. Even the angels weren't in on this. He says the prophets were given this word or this insight into the grace of God, which was to come in the form of a Messiah. They were given this insight through the Holy Spirit. They received the message, and then they wanted to know when and how this was going to occur. So they had some idea of what they were talking about, but, but not really. They couldn't really fully understand it. But they wanted to know. It just seems reasonable, I think. If, if we were the Old Testament prophets, and we'd been given this inside info, we'd have questions. This sounds pretty great. When is this going to happen? We still ask those questions now. So the information's been revealed to them about the sufferings of one who was to come and the subsequent glories another connection between suffering and glory and all they knew for sure was that whatever this was is going to be somehow miraculous in nature I mean think of the example of Isaiah 53 for example this, this great chapter about the suffering of Christ and what is to come did Isaiah fully understand what he was writing I don't think so but he had questions for sure and as they, as they searched as they inquired they asked their questions who what where when these things would take place and the language here suggests a diligent searching. They didn't just pause for a minute and go, huh, wonder what that means. They spent time trying to figure it out. And they were told, well, this message isn't really for you. I mean, it is. It's not going to apply directly to you right now. Not, not in the same sense that it applies to us, you know, in the, in the post-Jesus world. But for the prophets, this was still an issue of faith. They were being told what God was going to do. And it was a matter of faith for them to record it, to believe that he was going to do it. They were part of God's redemptive plan for telling the life and death of Jesus, even though they couldn't really figure out what all it meant. Just that this message was important for future generations, even the angels weren't given the, the full script on what was to come. But boy, they wanted to know. They longed to see and know what, all, what was happening and how God was going to work all of this out. And I think they just have been amazed watching this drama unfold over the centuries. God's plan prevailed. 
And I think one of the important takeaways from this last couple of verses here is, is this is a reminder that God is sovereign. With us in mind, he constructed and has directed history in such a way that even the Old Testament prophets were telling us about the eventual suffering of Jesus, who was the Christ. They were, they were telling us about the substitutionary atonement offered through Jesus on the cross. They were laying the groundwork for the good news of the gospel centuries before it came to pass as we know it and understand it. Because an almighty, sovereign God was behind it all. So Peter felt this was important to include here in his argument. He wants us to, to reflect on these things. He wants us to understand the, the breadth and scope of this concerning our salvation. God's plan of redemption was conceived long before we were. The execution of his plan has been perfect in every detail, even though we may find it baffling at times. We may find it annoying from time to time. Why doesn't God do things the way we would do it, we like to think? But God knew, and he still knows what he's doing. And what he's doing, what he's been doing throughout history is paving a path to reconciliation between God and man. We have been on his mind since before he spoke the world into existence. We've been on his mind since before Adam and Eve's rebellion. We were on his mind when God the Father watched God the Son nailed to a cross. We were on his mind when the resurrection power of God the Spirit raised Jesus from the grave to offer us a living hope. Now, if God has been planning this for so long, for our sakes, can we even begin to imagine the inheritance that he has prepared for us? And if God's willing to do all of this for us, can we even begin to imagine the glory that's to be revealed when we see Jesus as he is? We can't see him now, but we can certainly look forward to the glory of that day when we see him on his throne, having done all of this for us and still rewarding us, giving us more, blessing us more. And what does he ask of us? What is our role to play in this? Well, Jesus died for us and asks us to live for him. As his chosen, as his elect, we are first and foremost citizens of a heavenly city, but we're slogging it out here in this earthly city for a while, doing our best to be imitators of Christ, working our way towards holiness for our sake and trying to bring others into the faith for their sake. We are still called to reach the nations. Now, our circumstances while we're here certainly will be challenging. Trials and temptations will be more than a few. Our commitment to Christ will be tested. But a tried and tested faith, one that perseveres and endures, will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. May we be found faithful. Let's pray. Gracious Father, this is such a, an encouraging text, and yet it spends so much time talking about suffering and grief. But this gives us reason to look ahead. It gives us reason to cast our eyes not on the things below, but on the things above. To look forward to the glorious appearance of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ when he returns for us. Lord, I pray that as we continue to go through this text, that we see these 
the, the directions for us, this, this almost kind of manual for how we are to live as elect exiles in this pagan culture. Lord, I, I pray that you continue to build us up when we are, when we are tested, uh, when we are feeling trial by fire, and a lot of us have been through that this year already, Lord. May we persevere. May we find those tests and trials to be faith-building, to be purifying. Lord, may it move us towards holiness. I pray that for, the, for that individually, for those of us here individuals, but I also pray for that for us as a church, that when people hear our name mentioned or hear our church mentioned, that it's a, a, a positive reaction and not a negative one or a, a surprised one. So Lord, continue to build us, continue to follow us into the church, that, that build us into the church that you want us to be as we, as we try to live faithfully following you. We thank you for your patience and for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.